But if you really want to know the culture, the history, the spirituality, the ethics, the philosophy, it's all in the language. And what I think is so ingenious about this is that human beings are hardwired to speak. So we will put the teachings in, a, in an environment, in a medium that everyone has access to. And that maybe you reach a point in your life where you're asking, well, what is it to really love someone? What is it to be intelligent or to have strength of heart and courage? And you could look into the word itself. And for me, when I began understanding that, it felt almost like I could hear the ancestors speaking to me, that I could hear their voice, that we too have had these experiences and we would like to pass them to you. So have you ever wondered what ancient wisdom might be hidden in plain sight? What if the key to living a good life was right in front of us, encoded in the languages and stories of ancient cultures that we largely ignore in the name of trying to find the next hack or technology or platform supplement or intervention? Well, my guest today, James Vuklitsch Kagegabo, a descendant of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe, has dedicated over 20 years to studying, preserving, and sharing the indigenous wisdom embedded in the Ojibwe language. And James's journey is a really inspiring one. After being largely estranged from the Ojibwe language stories and wisdom of his heritage until his mid-20s, this seemingly inconsequential decision led him back to immerse himself not only in the language, but in the rich cultural treasures and deep wisdom hidden within it. And that quest led him to work on the Ojibwe Language Dictionary Project, recording and translating wisdom from Ojibwe elders and fluent speakers across North America, and over time, uncovering, archiving, and sharing unconventional, yet deeply resonant and powerful insights about what it truly takes to live a good life. And in his fascinating new book, The Seven Generations and the Seven Grandfather Teachings, James reveals how the Ojibwe notions of truth, humility, respect, love, courage, honesty, and wisdom can guide us all to living a good life. And you'll be fascinated to discover how similar yet profoundly different these concepts are from Western notions. And his insights and stories and deep passion for his culture and the wisdom that derives from it truly drew me in powerfully and delivered just the antidote our modern souls need to heal and reconnect and rediscover a sense of purpose, meaning, and inner peace in these days. It's an incredible offering of everyday wisdom for living a good life with a different take, hidden in plain sight within indigenous languages and stories. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I um, recently was watching, I guess, something that you were sharing that familiarity with Ojibwe language um, was there younger, but it wasn't actually something that, that was spoken and truly understood for you until your mid-20s. I'm, I'm curious about that journey. It was fascinating. It has been the most exciting intellectual, spiritual philosophy journey of my life, but it didn't begin until I was 25. Mm. I had originally intended to be a French teacher, And I had studied film and video, English, and I discovered French literature, came totally enamored of it, and decided the best way to learn was to become totally immersed. And so I moved to Quebec for a year. I studied at the Université de Québec, Trois-Rivières. And when I came back to Minneapolis, I needed to take another course to get my full financial aid package. And I saw Ojibwe was being offered. And at this point, I had studied French, Italian, some Latin in middle school. But I'd never heard the Ojibwe language. And my mom's Ojibwe, my grandma's Ojibwe. And I thought, well, I'll give this a try. And I recall going to the bookstore, picking up this book, Portage Lake by Noah Kamagukwebun, the late Mod Keg, opening it up and seeing this word, Ishkwa Manomanekewat. And when it was written on the page, it took up half of the page in double vowel. And I was taken aback. I was like, who uses a word this long? What does this mean? And that's where I began learning about the Ojibwe language. It was the first time in my life I had ever heard the story about me told in the language. Pre-K through university, I had no exposure at all, really, to the language, to the history, to the culture, to the spirituality. And then it began. So I went all in at that point. Despite having moved to another country to learn another language, whenever I had a chance, and I was a young man, so I could spend, you know, 12 to 18 hours a day working with the language. I was lucky I had learned how to learn a language going through the immersion Mm -hmm. process in Quebec. So uh, it was a little more streamlined for me, but I delved in wholeheartedly. It sounds like the pull for you, it wasn't just the fascination by the language, but there was something bigger that was drawing you you back into it. Well, when I lived in Quebec, I had saw people who were, you know, at that point proposing to secede from Quebec in acknowledgement of their language, of their culture, of their history, and that it wasn't being, I think in their opinion, uh, acknowledged enough by the citizens and government of Quebec. And when I came back to the United States, I asked myself, well, these people have come here to this country with their language, with their culture. Why isn't our language and why isn't our culture first and foremost? It's been spoken here for thousands upon thousands of years. So I went all in in trying to revitalize the language. It wasn't saving the language. It was breathing life back into the language. And that part was very important to me in the first part of my journey. I know you shared that your mom and your grandma were brought up, but neither of them shared the language. Yeah. I'm curious what the why is behind that. I think I I may understand it, but I'd love for you to share um, more. And also, even though the language wasn't present, were the traditions, the stories present in your upbringing? The language wasn't present at all. And there's a very good reason for this. My mother went to a boarding school. My mother, grandmother went to a residential school. 
There's a little difference in the nomenclature there. In Canada, they're referred to as residential schools. In the United States, as boarding schools. And these were total institutions. A lot of people aren't aware that for, you know, since late 1800s, all the way into the uh, late 1970s, children were removed from their home and they went to compulsory boarding school. The mandate was to kill the Indian in order to save the man. That's how it began. So in these total institutions, the clothes they wore, the food they ate, the language they spoke, the books they read, when they went to the bathroom, when they went to class, when they lined up, when they woke up in the morning, all of these things were determined for them by the institution. This is very similar to other total institutions like the military or prison. And like many other indigenous kids who went to these schools, if you were caught using the language, if you were caught practicing the the spirituality or the culture, you'd be punished in some cases rather cruelly and harshly. So, you know, my mother and my grandmother did not grow up with that. They grew up at, at the boarding schools. So it was hard to deal with what they had gone through. I really couldn't appreciate it until I began learning the language and then hearing the history. All of my Ojibwe teachers were boarding school survivors. Each one of them had gone through that experience and they had some very dark stories that they shared about their experience with it. There were a number of kids who did not survive the boarding school era and a number of them went through. It's a dark topic, but it's, it's I think it needs to be acknowledged, uh, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and, and sexual abuse at these places. So I didn't really have a chance to to grow up with the language because the language is so tied in with the stories and with the culture. Uh, that wasn't there as well. So it was a new approach for me, and it was one where I began, when I began learning the language, I began learning the culture, a totally uninformed place. I was just taking my first steps there. I'm curious, as you start your journey into really understanding both the language and the culture and the stories, did that serve in any meaningful way? as a bridge to really understanding the experience and the stories of your mom and your grandmother? It did. Having heard the stories from the people who were teaching me, Ojibwe, my mom and my grandmother didn't really share a lot about their mm. boarding school experiences. Yeah, which is fairly common from what I understand. It really is. There was this one occasion, I recall, and I, I really appreciate it as an older man in middle age where I was maybe 11 or 12 <laughs> and I was doing laundry with my mom on the weekend. It was Saturday afternoon and I was complaining about it, of course, because I wanted to be outside playing. My mom got very angry for a moment, you know, just natural with a, a child who's complaining about doing chores and said, you should feel lucky you get to live at home that you have a chance to do laundry at home. And as when I became an older man, I realized that she hadn't had that experience. And that so many of the people I would run into who are learning the language, who are uh, returning to the culture, to the history, and to the spirituality, were had gone through that similar experience where they weren't raised at home. They weren't raised with the language. They were raised uh, at the boarding school. And so that part, I really became sensitive to it and empathetic and compassionate. And it became a point for some people who were maybe resentful about not having the language or not growing up with it. For me, it became a moment where I was like, ah, you had gone through this as well. So at my grandmother, those were two links in the chain that didn't have exposure to the language. When you start to really immerse yourself in it, and I know this leads to, almost rises to the level of quest for you, it initiates at some point the Ojibwe Language Dictionary Project, which really brings the wisdom and the language and the culture of, of elders into a centralized place for a lot of people. And it sounds like you start to really find yourself dropping into the wisdom in a much deeper way and distilling it. And then at some point, feeling like this is really important. And even though it comes from thousands of years old, this is ancient distilled wisdom. It's so poignant and relevant to our lived experience today. And you start to share 
in many different forms in many different ways, effectively turning around and becoming an educator or teacher yourself. I think it's so fascinating. I want to, of course, drop into so many of the ideas here. But, you know, we live in this world now where we're so caught up in how do we tap technology? How do we tap tools? How do we tap science to, to get the things we want, to feel the way we want to feel? And yet we so often largely ignore this deeply embedded and embodied ancient wisdom that would not have survived if there wasn't something in it. Oh, indeed. And your points about technology, I agree with. Uh, in the beginning days, what I wanted to do was make Ojibwe kind of a one-click, have a source so it could be one-click, like so many things I noticed with our youth. Although there had been kind of an internet divide at that time, most of them had a cell phone. And them an opportunity to hear their language in the same place they listen to music, the same place where they watch videos on YouTube, that was really important. But uh, yeah, the idea to pass on the language through a dictionary project, I feel so grateful I had a chance to work on that project. I really began learning a lot. There were moments when I had a chance to talk with elders, with fluent first language speakers, and this is when it really began to click about what was actually in the language. Because when you're writing a language, I mean, when you're writing a dictionary, the goal is to, you know, be as comprehensive as possible. And with a language as vast as Ojibwe, that those are, that's a lot of words. It's a lot of work. However, when I would begin speaking with elders, we would get on one word. And in some cases, they would have teachings that would go on for, you know, maybe 20 minutes hmm. with one word. It was the history of the word. It was when it had been used in ceremony. It's what it had meant back then and how you could reinterpret it today. And how those ceremonies had changed. Uh, how people may do them today. And this would be one word. <laughs> so as I began, there was this... A little bit of conflict inside because I'm like, I really want to know all of these words. At the same time, I really want to get a whole bunch of citations down for the dictionary. <laughs> so I really began to take note that, ah, there may be something I'm not paying close enough attention to in the words. I had been told ever since I began learning the language that if you really want to know the culture, the history, the spirituality, the ethics, the philosophy, it's all in the language. And here I was listening to and learning from real-time examples of that, of people taking me back thousands of years and all the way up to the present moment. I had become, at this point, totally enamored with it. Yeah. Is Ojibwe largely a spoken language, a written language, or is, there, or is it just a blend of both? Because I know a lot of indigenous wisdom often, it travels through generations in an oral way. So I'm, I'm curious what your experience was of that. It's of course, been spoken for thousands of years. Uh, the first published written text is in the 1630s. This is a French and Ojibwe document, a letter that's sent to, to France. So as a written language, it is only a little bit younger than Finnish, maybe 100 years younger than Finnish, and maybe 300 years younger than Russian in the old Cyrillic alphabet. So there is a tradition of writing the language, but it has been passed down orally. And the main focus was on the oral tradition. And when I began thinking about that statement, that if you really want to know the culture, the history, the spirituality, it's all in the language, I discovered what I think is an ingenious investment in us. That people, in order to pass down these teachings embedded them in the words that we use every day. They too must have gone through these experiences and asked themselves, well, how will I pass this down to someone I've never met? I'll never meet. I'll never speak to. I'll never listen to or hold. How will I pass this down to someone seven generations from now? And knowing that anything they create will one day turn to dust. It's the nature of life here on earth. How did they decide to pass these teachings down, we will put it in the language. And what I think is so ingenious about this is that human beings are hardwired to speak in our minds. We, we learned, I learned this in a 
During my graduate studies in linguistics, we speak for the same reason that we can touch, we can smell, we can see, we can hear. It's hardwired into us. So we will put the teachings in a in an environment, in a medium that everyone has access to. And that maybe you reach a point in your life where you're asking, well, what is it to really love someone? What is it to be intelligent or to have strength of heart and courage? And you could look into the word itself. And for me, when I began understanding that, it felt almost like I could hear the ancestors speaking to me, that I could hear their voice, that we too have had these experiences and we would like to pass them to you. You too, you'll have them as well as a human being. And I think that's where that relevance shows up, that a language that, despite being thousands of years old, is, has some very important teachings to share with us as, you know, in this modern age in 2023 on how to seek out a good life. Yeah. How to find a life of peace and balance. This at some point turns into, you know, what starts as a much broader immersive quest for you around developing a little dictionary to distilling down to, I guess, a, a select set of, of teachings, seven teachings in particular, really around the way that I experience it. I'm curious if this was the intention, you know, the, the Ojibwe lens on what it means to live a good life. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And there's a word that translates roughly to the good life, which can you pronounce that for me? Because I was trying and trying and trying. I'm like, how do you actually say this properly? Minopamatsuin. 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 Okay. That is the goal. That is what we are seeking. And I found that from time immemorial to present to seek out the good life. That would be the goal. Yeah. And it can really mean to, to live well, also to have good health. And also to lead a good life. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You describe the notion almost as a preamble to the teachings. of There's a concept of seven generations. Take me into that. The concept of seven generations is one that shows up internationally in uh, Indian country, in Anishinaabe Waking. For example, the, the Lakota warrior in Holy Man, He Haka Sapa. And you'll have to forgive my Lakota, it's poor at best. He spoke of a time of seven generations after that terrible battle and massacre at Mudidni. 
For him, this would be a unit of time. It would take seven generations for the Lakota to make, to make the hoop of life whole again, the circle of life whole with the Americans, with the Wasichu. I heard of seven generations for the first time in my life in high school, briefly with Deganawida, with the great peacemaker. And uh, there I had heard that in every one of our deliberations, in every one of our decisions, we will have to think seven generations into the future. And when I heard that as a, as a young person, that was very profound, a little confounding. Like, how do we do that? How do we come up with an action, a choice, a decision that affects someone seven generations from now? And uh, what I approach in, the, uh, in my book, The Seven Generations and Seven Grandfather Teachings, is an Ojibwe perspective of it. And for our listeners who don't know, Ojibwe, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Iroquois, Haudenosaunee, they're as different from each other, comparatively speaking, as Mandarin Chinese, Somali, and German. Three different languages spoken on three different continents by three different nations of people. So I always like to point out that I'm speaking about an Ojibwe Anishinaabe perspective of that. And there's this word that shows up, Ndanakobitchigan, Ndanakobitchigan. And it really means my great-grandparent. It can mean my ancestor, but it also means my great-grandchild. And when you look at that logically, if it implies my great-grandparent and my great-grandchild, you have a span of seven generations that are punctuated by this word in Danakobichigan. When I discovered what that word means in Danakobichigan, this was a case where I was looking into the words and uh, not just a translation, but an interpretation. I found this small word part, onik. And you know, having learned from it by listening to and recording these elders, I began looking at what that onik meant. And it meant to be interconnected, to be interlinked, like a bike chain or a thread woven into a tapestry or blanket, to be interlinked, to be interconnected. So when I spiritually interpreted that word, rather than just a translation into English, when I interpreted it, it really meant that one I am inextricably interconnected to that being I am inextricably linked to. And in Ojibwe, it's our word for my great-grandparent, my great-grandchild. There I saw seven generations that are punctuated by this concept of being interconnected, of being interlinked. What's so fascinating about that to me also is the way that you're measuring time. It's not just in one direction. You're going backwards and forwards. And embedded in that is the assumption, and maybe it's my assumption, tell me if this is accurate or not, that the way that we move through the world in this moment, in our present, has the ability to ripple out in both directions. Indeed. And this was something I, I had kind of discovered about myself, that I had only been looking at it in a linear fashion. That we begin now, and everything we do affects someone seven generations from now. But when I understood that word, all of a sudden, past, present, and future, we're all taking place now. It's like all happening right now. And where I knew if I could lead a good life, a life of peace and balance, life without conflict with my environment or my relatives, a life without contradiction where I'm saying one thing and doing another, everything I do would be positively beneficial for someone coming seven generations from now, for my great-grandchild and their great-grandchildren. What I learned as I looked at it holistically was that by seeking out a good life now, we may be able to heal someone who is no longer with us. In my case, that could be my great-grandparents, that could be my grandparents, or even my father. He is no longer here. We have a chance to heal those people who, who may not be here with us because we're still inextricably interconnected to them. We're still living out their story. And so that, that became a different perspective for me. It became, uh, how can I heal those who may no longer be here? as well as live in a way that I can bring peace and balance to people I'll probably never see, speak to, listen to, or hold. Yeah, it's such a powerful concept in that, at least for me, you know, the notion of if we have somebody who's no longer with us, who we love dearly and who we saw suffer, struggle, deal with demons, whatever it may have been, and left this place, this plane, this moment in a state where that was never resolved. The notion that choosing to move through the way in a particular or through the world in a particular way now, 
that may not only ripple out to like children or children's children and many generations forward, but in some way, in some ethereal, energetic, intergenerational way, that there is a mechanism to reach back and help somebody close a chapter. Of course, you know, some people will hear this and roll their eyes and say, like, that's absurd. It's silly. You know, like the door's closed. But I think others will be more open to at least some notion of the ability to be a part of a process of peace that is multidirectional and healing that is just deeply appealing in many ways. And for me, yeah, there was great appeal to that because having met so many people who had gone through, through colonization, through, you know, when I look at my great grandfather's example, who was born a hundred years before me and how things had changed for him, he would see the creation of a reservation, a place he couldn't leave without express written consent from an Indian agent where he would, could be arrested for practicing his spirituality or even speaking his language. And whereas children were moved, those people who went through that experience, those people who went through the, who were boarding school survivors and may have dealt with that pain and anguish in ways that weren't healthy, who may have suffered from alcoholism through uh, substance abuse, to have the opportunity to say, uh, the life I'm living wasn't necessarily determined by the struggle you went through and by leading a healthy life now. You know, uh, we're still living out your story. We're still interconnected. Uh, that wasn't the end of, of the chapter. It wasn't the end of the book. It was, it was a, another installment. Mm, yeah, it's beautiful. One of the other, I guess, an ethos is around the notion of the perspective of the self as a part of a collective, which rings is just profoundly different than a more mainstream Western notion of that really elevates the individual as like the fundamental unit of life. And it seems like a lot of the stories and the culture and the teachings wrapped around the ancestral wisdom that you come from, it really is, everything is anchored in the idea of interconnectedness and also the your role, not just as an individual, but as a part of something bigger. It was one of those light bulb moments when I was learning about the seven generations. Finally, I had, I had understood what I had heard about so often in English, seven generations, think seven generations ahead. And I recall speaking to an elder who had related this story to me that when he was growing up, we would call them Gete Anishinaabeg. The translation he provided as an ESL speaker was an old time Indian. These were people who were born on trap lines where they uh, hunted, fished, and trapped. They lived in cabins or may have been born in a Waginogon, in a domed lodge, a wigwam. And he was telling me that that generation of people, when they became elders, they would try to avoid using this word neen. And neen means I, me, myself. And I was really intrigued by that. As a linguist, I knew that it, it serves a perfectly logical linguistic function. The teaching I, I had gotten out of it was when I translated that word neen into Latin, and it becomes ego, ego. The teaching, what they were trying to share was that this idea of I, me, myself, it, it might be a myth, it might be an illusion. For them, I'm a link in the chain going all the way back and going all the way forward. I am all of my relatives. I'm inextricably interconnected to all of my relatives, and everything I do will affect them through that connection. For them, the spiritual teaching was that only uh, only the kind spirit, the benevolent mystery, or God, the creator, can say I, excluding you. Human beings couldn't. We are, at this point, interconnected. We're interlinked. And when you come from that place, you make decisions differently. <laughs> Absolutely. It just it completely changes your orientation with the way that you move through the world in, in every way. Especially when your regard, when you know, you say, "Do I do this or do I do that? Do I say this or do I say that?" I think a lot of the sort of like the modern Western and you know, like lens on that is, "Well, how will it affect me?" And this really asks you to say, "How will it affect us?" Before doing or saying any of those things, which I think really leads us nicely to the the seven grandfather teachings that you share. I'd love to walk through some of these with you. The first one I, you tee up is, um, I guess it translates to, to truth. 
but it's not necessarily the way that, that I might understand the notion of truth. I love truth. That's why I wanted to open up the, the seven grandfather teachings with that particular one. I want to make a point, and it's, yeah, when you're making these decisions and you're using these grandfather teachings that show us how to lead a good life, you're making decisions for people who will not be here. And one of the sacred laws, it's truth. And I've heard a couple of different etymologies for it. And etymology, it's the, the history or story of a word. One of the first ones I heard came from the late elder Marlene Staley from Gazagasquajamecog from the Leech Lake Reservation. And for her, that word had in it date, heart, and way to speak. But I'm speaking to you from the very center and the core of my being. And that one I found very profound because I have seen petroglyphs and I had seen birch bark scrolls, which is how Anishinaabe Ojibwe people traditionally carried knowledge through pictographs and petroglyphs, where you would see this image carved into stone or birch bark with a heart and a line coming through it. And this is coming from the very center and core mm. of me. Another one I heard came from the late linguist uh, Basil Johnson. He was an Ojibwe man. Uh, and for him, he described truth as being deb to a certain extent, an extent that you really can't surpass. You can't go beyond in way to speak. I can speak to a certain extent. And he had a rather... A very charming anecdote about this when he spoke about this at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he had talked about an isolated yet insulated community. It was a flying community, so there were no roads that led here. To be able to get there, you had to fly in and land in the lake. And so once a month, court would come to this isolated community. There would be a judge, there'd be legal representation, and they would need interpreters because this was an isolated community, it was still insulated. So the people who lived there still used Ojibwe on a daily basis. They had no reason yet to use French or English. Everyone they spoke to on a daily basis used Ojibwe. And when they were asked in court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, some of them said, I can't do that. And it was a problem in interpreting. What they were saying is, I can tell you everything I saw, I witnessed, I was a party to, but that may or may not be the whole truth. I can speak my truth to you. So that was one interpretation I got of the word Deboy. As I began to look into it more, I found like another level of teaching with that to be able to speak to a certain extent. I wondered if like maybe the spirit of the language was censoring itself here. If maybe the language was saying, I can't define something eternal to you using words, which are the sounds of our thoughts. Uh, you're using the wrong tool for this. This is something that has to be experienced. It has to be, a, it has to be lived rather than using a word to describe it. And it's great because we can get in our lives, you know, get mistake the word or the thought for the thing. And I wonder if a word like truth in Ojibwe is saying, don't mistake the word for the real lived experience. You'll have to have this to really understand it. And it's like it builds a certain amount of inherent subjectivity into the notion of truth, which is our lived experience. Like five people can witness and be a part of the identical moment or experience and describe it very differently. And it sort of acknowledges the fact that this is just the nature of reality. Like I can speak to what I have perceived, but I cannot tell you that that is indeed the fact itself or what anyone else would have experienced in the exact same moment or, or, or circumstance, which I think is pretty cool that it allows for that, actually. I was absolutely fascinated by, by the insight and, and by the knowledge. And then to embed that teaching into a word mm. that we would use, in, uh, again, in everyday conversation. Yeah. What a genius investment. Indeed. And that leads to the notion of humility another one of these seven teachings, and really framing it up from what I could perceive as this notion that our dependence on other beings for survival is at the core of who we are. It relates back to that notion of interconnectedness, relatedness that we were talking about. So one of my questions when I realized, well, if truth isn't something I can speak about, I may not even be able to comprehend in thought. It might, must be experienced. 
I asked myself, well, how did our ancestors seek out truth? And that's when I began examining uh, the spirituality and the ceremony of our ancestors. And one of the most ancient ones I found, it's called Ki'ugoshimoen, the vision quest. And it is when a young boy will go out on a fast. He will fast from food and water. He'll be in isolation for up to four days and three nights. And while he's by himself, he will seek out a dream. He will seek out a vision. As from the Anishinaabe perspective, as the physical self becomes weaker, the spiritual self gains strength. So as he's negated all of his relationships with, with food, water, medicine, even with his relatives as he's in solitude seeking this out, I wonder if this young boy who is out on a fast begins asking himself, well, where do I get my food? Where do I get my clothing? Where do I get my shelter from? And it's all coming from the earth. It is the animals who are feeding us and clothing us, the trees who are giving us fire, the giving us the very oxygen we need to breathe, the earth, the plants, the mushkiki. I love this word in Ojibwe, mushkiki, medicine. It really means mushk, strength, and aki, the earth. When the human being needs healing when, or nourishment, they seek out the strength of the earth. And the water, the nabi, is giving life to all of it. What I think this boy is realizing is that in this word for humility, in this ceremony of, of fasting for a vision, on going on a vision quest, he realizes that he has a relationship to each one of these animals, to the fish, to the birds, to the plants, to the trees, to the water. And in that relationship, he becomes a relative. So I think from some perspectives, to be a relative, it's either to have, you know, a, maybe a DNA connection to someone. Here, becoming a relative is, is through relationship. And he realizes, well, what happens to a human being without food, water, clothing, or shelter? You will perish. You will certainly die. At this point, he realizes, ah, I can't live without my relatives. I'm interconnected with them. Whatever is going to affect them will affect me. And then he realizes humility. And that word in Ojibwe, dabasin dezo, he or she is humble. It has in it dabas, which is low. Ain is to think and dezo is of oneself. Now, I think lowly of myself may sound like low self-esteem in modern contemporary English, but what I think he's trying to do is put the human being where the human being belongs in relationship. I am not more important than the relatives who give me life. In fact, I know without them I can't survive. I can't live. So therefore, I, I, I think lowly of myself. I don't exalt myself above my relatives. What an important teaching to have for your environment, your society, and also of, of people who may not be here yet, of, of generations who are coming to think I'm not more important than you. I am one of you, and I can't live without you. I feel like that ties very closely in this third teaching offer around respect as well. Those two really seamless. Well, I guess all seven of these honestly tie really powerfully together, you know, but respect in the notion of it feels like gratitude is embedded in, in this notion of respect the way that you describe it. And that word for respect, it's menaji ituin. It means like to go easy on. Mm. And the moment you realize that, ah, when I'm harvesting corn or manoman, I have taken the ear of corn off of the stalk. It's no longer alive. When I've knocked the grain of rice, wild rice, into the canoe, I mean, it's, it's no longer growing. When I've gone hunting for deer, for moose, which is our Ojibwe word for moose, uh, for uh, omashkus, for elk, you know, they're no longer alive in order for me to be clothed, in order for me to eat. The idea is that you go easy onto them. You take only what you need. Because you acknowledge that they're giving their life to you so that you can, you can survive. And you harvest only what you need. It would almost be catastrophically stupid to go in over-harvest to, to kill all of the buffalo, to, to decimate the moose populations, to overfish. And in that, though, that word for respect, it's reciprocal. From an Ojibwe perspective, they go easy on each other is really what that sacred law would translate to. From an Ojibwe perspective, it, it's the animals, it's the plants, it's the environment who is going easy on us, who is looking at poor, pitiful human beings and saying, if we do not clothe and feed and shelter, 
our younger siblings, they're not going to survive. We are going to go easy on them. We're going to acknowledge the sacredness of their lives. For me, I really think of of humility being like to acknowledge the sanctity of our relatives' lives. And the bidirectionality of that is really powerful also. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The teaching that you build on on that is one of love, which is at the center of these seven teachings. I'm assuming that you actually chose the order of how why you would present them in a particular way. I was curious how intentional it was that this was at the center of the seven. As I began doing this talk in the first time, this was a natural flow when I began looking at them. But I think love was, for me, the most, they all work with one another. They're all interconnected. But I could find each one of these grandfather teachings, each one of these sacred laws in love. If you truly love someone, are you are you humble? Are you trying to exalt yourself above the person you love? Are you respectful? You know, Do you speak the truth to someone you, you care very deeply about, or, or do you deceive them with words? And it struck me, and... In the middle of this, it, and I was giving this talk, it was like, ah, well, who would feed us? And why would they do that? Why would they look after us? Why would they nurture us? Why would they give us medicine when we're ill? And it must be because they love us. And that's when I began, began really looking at that, what that word meant. And it was hard because when I spoke about truth in the beginning, I was saying you can't define something eternal. And love is certainly eternal. Uh, the love we feel today I don't think is different than the love someone felt thousands of years ago or the love someone who hasn't been born will feel. So how do I describe that? And that was it. I wasn't seeking out a definition. I don't think the language tries to define it. I think it tries to describe it. 
It's almost like something that emerges from deep within us. It's not something that's thought about. It's not coming from an intellectual pursuit. It's something that that emerges from deep within us. And when it comes out, it's for the benefit of all of our relatives. Yeah, I mean, it's so powerful as you're describing that. What flashed into my mind was a conversation I had not too long ago with somebody who was a foster parent and had brought a child into their family who had known nothing up until that moment that could be described as love. And they were trying to actually explain to this kid what love was. And the kids simply had no concept of it. They couldn't relate to any of the descriptors, to any, to, to a feeling that was within them. And we were talking and sort of like saying, like, how do you explain love to someone who has no lived experience of it? And it was a really profound moment because it, it really made me realize it. it is one of those words that I feel like you know it when you feel it. <laughs> you know it when it's conditional, it's taken away from you. But it's so hard to put language, like truly descriptive language. And even if you could, it would only be relevant to you. Absolutely. And like along the same lines, I've never read a novel or a poem or heard a song or saw a sculpture or a painting that captured that feeling like I have for grandma and grandpa, that I have for my parents or for my son. It's ineffable. It's literally beyond words. And what I found in the language, in the Ojibwe language, was a description. The description of how something eternal can move through something impermanent, a, a human being, something with a beginning and an end. And when I saw that came out in, in different examples, like a, like the sun coming out, Zagachuwe, and the sun rising and, and shining on everyone and everything, I found in that same morpheme, Zag, Zagachuwe, that was in Zagit, when that was in love. And I thought, well, there it is. It has to be something for everyone and everything. And so rather than coming up with maybe these rules and definitions of love, our ancestors were sharing a, a description. Maybe what does uh, Kijay want to do? What does the kind spirits, unconditional love look like? And it's, it's, it's got to be something for everyone and everything. And then acknowledging that, yeah, that's something that can come through you as well. It's not reserved exclusively for the spiritual. You can, you can have that as well in your life. Building on that, we move into courage, which is interesting because often I feel like people think about the notion of courage and there's a certain aggressiveness to it. And certainly there are stories of courage in the face of violence, in the face of battle, in the face of fighting. But the way you describe it is also a much more heart-centered experience. Indeed, it has that word heart in it. Our Ojibwe word for courage is Zungade'e. Its literal translation would mean he or she has a strong heart. And the example I use in my book, and it was an example that, that transformed the way I looked at that came from maybe even a centuries-long conflict that was here in Minnesota, in the, in the state I live in. And this was between two different uh, uh, Indian nations, the Dakota and uh, the Ojibwe. And they had been fighting over contested land for some time. Some people say 100 winters. It may have been even 200 winters. And these nations hadn't known peace every year. Sometimes only five to 10 people on each side would perish, but there wasn't peace. There wasn't balance. There was always the threat of violence. And the story I tell comes probably after the Great Dakota Uprising here in Minnesota in 1862. And a Dakota village is, is, comes under attack by American forces, by American soldiers. And it said a woman hides for her life. We are Kashintaling, tailfeather woman. She's hiding in the water, completely submerged, and she's using a hollow reed to breathe through. And it said she hides for life for three to four days. And when I say hiding for life, like the Soldiers who had attacked her village, you know, they weren't there to take prisoners. They were there to, to destroy the village. And it's said she has a vision from Wakantanka, the great mystery, the great spirit, who tells her that the spirit is very disappointed in how human beings are living their life. There's a great deal of violence at this time. The wars for the Great Plains are raging. 
And the Dakota aren't just fighting the Americans. They're also engaged in a war with the Ojibwe. She's told that if you were, if the Dakota were to bring a drum, a very special particular drum to the Ojibwe, it would bring peace to both of their nations. And she's able to mystically escape with her life. She brings this vision back to the nearest Dakota village. She relates it to the, to the holy men there. They begin at once creating this drum. And it said when they present it to the Ojibwe, in some cases, this is at Mississauga Ginning at Lake Mille Lacs, the original Medewakan Mystic Lake. And the Ojibwe accept it. They're able to sit at the drum. And our word for drum is very beautiful. It has in it day. Like in truth, the heart, way, is the sound in a gun. It's like a, an implement, an instrument. It's the instrument that makes the sound of the heart, the drum beat. And these two nations who had brought the very worst of what war has to bring, poverty, bereavement, anxiety, rage, terror, were able to sit with one another. And when they sounded the drum, it represented both of their hearts beating together. The smoke that was coming up from the, from the opagan, from the sacred pipe, it represented both of their, their prayers and aspirations raising up to the heavens. And when they were singing, they were speaking with one voice. And I saw an example of what true strength of heart was. It was no longer for me to, to be totally unafraid to go and fight Dakotas. It meant to, be, to have the strength of heart to treat Dakotas as relatives, as they had always been. It had been our perception that was wrong. And that was true strength of heart. It was an example of how reconciliation was possible when, it, when it's done the right way. But it, it, it absolutely demands strength of heart for it to be successful. I love the notion that courage is intertwined with empathy in this understanding of it. It's a little counterintuitive by the way that we've heard courage described so many ways, but it also, if part of what so many of us are looking for these days is reconnection and reconciliation and the courage that it would take to do that, how can that courage not embody empathy at the same time in some meaningful way? Which leads us in an interesting way to the sixth teaching around honesty, which I thought it was fascinating because we started out this journey with truth, truthfulness. And you make a distinction between truth and honesty. And it was an interesting one to make because yeah. in standard American English, you know, uh, if you tell the truth, you're honest. If you're honest, you tell the truth. These are kind of synonymous terms. The way the Ojibwe language described it didn't have to do exactly with what you were saying it had everything to do with how you were living. When I looked at what that word Dizi, which is that sacred law, that grandfather teaching of truth, he or she lives correctly, I think would be the best literal interpretation of that. He or she lives correctly. Guayak is straight, right, proper, correct. And Atsi is to live. And when I looked at examples of what it meant to be truly honest, it meant to... Are my words and actions in alignment? Do I walk the walk or do I just talk the talk? And I think everyone has the experience at one point in their life or another where you have someone who's telling you to act a certain way, to dress a certain way, to speak a certain way, to do a particular ceremony, and then you see them do something completely different. Unlike a Friday or a Saturday night, everyone goes through this. It's hypocrisy. It's, it's contradiction. And I think in the language they're saying is... If you truly want to know, if I'm telling the truth, observe how I lead my life. The truth invariably comes out. It always does. Am I leading a holistic life then? A life where my, my words are in alignment with my actions. Which really brings us to the seventh teaching around wisdom. And again, it's so fascinating to me because each of these words we've all heard countless times, and yet you describe them with some overlap, but also with some really powerful distinctions. Wisdom, at least it sounds like to me is, I don't want to say enlightenment, because I don't really understand what that word means, to be honest with you. And to me, that's always been this ultimate aspiration that has been connected to certain Eastern traditions that allow us to, quote, opt out of the cycle of birth and rebirth, you know, reincarnation, or out of a cycle of suffering. But I don't think that you're teeing this word up 
really in that way. And see, I liked the word enlightenment because I think, well, that word wisdom, its origin has to do with a wit, light. And when you see it show up in different languages, uh, Indo-European languages, it seems to deal with vision, with sight, with light, which you absolutely need to be able to see. In uh, ancient Sanskrit, it'll become the Veda, uh, knowledge. Uh, it'll become video or video. In Latin, it'll become idea. In ancient Greek, that moment where you have sight, where you are able to see something as it is. In Ojibwe, it has something very similar. The morpheme wa, which could be light, which could be energy. I wonder if this is to be able to, to see something, to be able to have vision, to be able to see things exactly as they are. And I wonder if that is enlightenment, that you will actually just be able to see things as they are hmm. without the delusion of or prejudice uh, that you're carrying along with you. One of the examples I use in the book is a wasigan, lightning. And I don't know if the listeners have ever had this experience where you're outside at night. Whenever there's a thunderstorm, I'll go outside and offer tobacco. I'll set down tobacco and acknowledge the thunder beings that are flying overhead. Let them know there are human beings down here. And it can be night, and all of a sudden there will be this magnificent flash of lightning. And it can even become brighter than midday. And you can see everything as it is. And you're not really thinking about what you're seeing. You just see it. You have vision. You have a, a moment of enlightenment where you have just seen it as it is without, again, that baggage of prejudice in your opinions and your judgments of everything around you. You, you just see it as it truly is, and then maybe be able to relate to it in that way. I love the notion of it. Um, it's almost like turning on the light bulb. Oh, oh, this is the reality. <laughs> or at least as close as I'm capable of getting to that. Because indeed, we, so many of us live in a, a world that is semi-illusional, semi-delusional, <laughs> partly you know, like factual and partly fabricated. And I, I often feel like the closer we can get to seeing clearly, more clearly, the reality of our own inner experience and external experience and bridge that gap that we move through life in a more genuine way. We, we can make decisions and take actions in a more clearly informed way and that the net effect of that has got to be more good in our worlds and in the world. You know, as we reflect back on these seven different teachings and back to the earlier part of our conversation, these are teachings that just help us move through each day, probably to a certain extent, relieve a certain amount of suffering, some of which is self-manufactured. But zooming the lens out, you know, is really goes back to the beginning of a conversation, which is these are things that would help us experience a better life. And by that also, that can happen in solitude. You know, like this is a bigger thing. So I feel like that's a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation because it leads us to the question that I always end every conversation with, which is in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I've had a chance to listen to your podcast and I've seen this question time and time again. And I'm so delighted to have had an opportunity to share with you that people in North America who have lived here for thousands of years, for indigenous people, whose main goal the main goal was, how can I lead a good life? How can we lead a good life? And to have that opportunity that a good life is one that's led with truth, with humility, not exalting yourself above your relatives, to acknowledge you are your relatives, to live with respect and acknowledge the sanctity of your relatives' lives, the sacredness of their lives, to have unconditional and compassionate love and blessing love your relatives, to lead a life with a strong heart, with courage, with bravery, to lead a holistic life where your words are in alignment with your actions, an honest life, to lead an intelligent life, life with truth, a life where all of your actions, a good life will be positively beneficial for all of your relatives, not just now, but for someone coming seven generations from now. That for me is, is truly living well, living a life worth living. Mm, thank you. Miigwech. Miigwech, Bizendawian. Thank you for listening. 
Hey, before you leave, if you'd love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation we had with Violet Duncan about the power of indigenous wisdom. You'll find a link to Violet's episode in the show notes. This episode of Good Life Project was produced by executive producers Lindsay Fox and me, Jonathan Fields. Editing help by Alejandro Ramirez, Christopher Carter crafted our theme music, and special thanks to Shelley Adele for her research on this episode. Good Life Project is a part of the Acast Creator Network. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person, just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those, you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Mm -hmm.